somewhere, you know, about five years ago or so, I was at work and I walked across someone's desk and I saw the paper where his mugshot was on the very front of it. As far as we know, Paul Rolls had exactly one victim who survived. It had been so many years, but I mean, I still recognized him. He kidnapped her from her bed when she was just 15 years old. Did you ever think you'd hear about Paul Rolls again? Honestly, no. When I saw it, I glanced at it and I was in shock. Like, I was like, what now? Like, what's going on with this person, you know? I started talking to her six years ago, and this is the first time she's agreed to do a recorded interview to tell her own story. After I came across the newspaper article, it just kind of hit me at that point that maybe it's time to share my story and my testimony. Her name is Laura, and I think she's one of the most important pieces in this entire case. She's finally ready to talk about what happened to her 26 years ago and how she survived a serial killer. I'm Haley Holloway, and this is Shallow Graves. Before we jump into what happened to Laura, we have to go back to where we left off in the last episode. If you'll remember, Elizabeth Foster's body had been found in a shallow grave off of Williston Road in 1992 with very few clues left behind. Less than two months after that, Paul Rolls left his wife, Kathy, and the kids, transferred his parole, and moved to Jacksonville. The house got foreclosed on, and that's when they were arguing about it. And then we ended up just saying, forget it, done. And we moved over to Clearwater. And that's where we ended up at the mm-hmm. Indian Rocks Baptist apartment complex. Remember Andrew? You heard from him back in episode two? He was technically Kathy's grandson, but she and Paul were raising him as their own son. Do you remember, did you guys move to Clearwater first or did he move to Jacksonville first? He moved to Jacksonville about, I'm wanting to say about three months before we moved to Clearwater. Okay. And were they like, this is it, we're done? No. Oh, no. He still kept coming around. They were still married. This was a reconciling chapter where Kathy lived on one side of Florida and Paul lived on the other, but they sometimes got back together, and it lasted about a year and a half. Kathy and Andrew had moved to Clearwater, which is close to Tampa, and they were living in a complex called Indian Rocks Baptist Apartments. I've been told by people who lived there that it was housing owned by a church for single moms or mothers going through a divorce. And Kathy was apparently there because she was separated from Paul. But that didn't stop Paul from coming down there from Jacksonville to stay with Kathy and Andrew. Kathy and them were talking about, you know, making it work. Okay, so they were patching it up and he was going to leave Jax. Yeah, he was going to leave Jacksonville and come back and stay with us. I don't have a lot on Paul from this time period. I just couldn't find many records. The most interesting thing I found is this one note from his parole officer recommending Paul's parole end just a year after Beth Foster was killed. But I haven't found any suspicious incident reports, no interviews with homicide detectives, no big parole issues. And it seems like that should be a good thing, and maybe it's just me, but I find this 
very quiet, large chunk of time where Paul was usually living by himself hours away from his wife and kid to be at least a little worrisome. But anyway, Andrew says somewhere in there, the family took a trip or two to Disney World and Paul and Kathy kept going back and forth between Jacksonville and Clearwater, on again, off again as usual, and sometimes with Andrew in tow. I remember the place there that he had in Jacksonville. We'd been there several times, even spent the weekend in Jacksonville, would go to the landing. Paul and Kathy got really serious about getting back together at the end of 1993. Paul had even started packing up his Jacksonville apartment to get ready to move to Clearwater. And in the middle of that process, he took a long trip to stay with his wife and Andrew through the holidays. After we moved in that following Christmas, he came over, you know, and stayed for Christmas and ended up giving me a CD player of his that he had had for Christmas. But Paul wasn't just there to see his family. I wasn't there the other times he actually entered in there, but there was all kinds of things happening. Laura told me her parents were separating at that time, and so Laura, her brother, and her mom had recently moved into the Indian Rocks complex, too. In fact, they moved into the unit right above Catherine Rolls and Andrew. But little did Laura and her family know, they had a frequent, uninvited guest when they weren't home. He had been to my mother's apartment several times, breaking in and taking things of mine. You know, he was doing things like that. On his long visit, around the middle of December, Paul Rolls said he noticed a 15-year-old sunbathing in the apartment complex. That 15-year-old was Laura, and she instantly became his new obsession. Like I would go downstairs to wash my clothes, and I'd come back, and I'd tell my mom, I'm like, where's all my you know, bras and underwear? Like, they're missing. We couldn't understand what was happening. The pastor who married Paul and his first wife, Linda, had stayed in touch with Paul ever since the wedding in 1970. In fact, he was actually one of the biggest advocates for Paul to get out of prison after the first murder. And Paul would later tell that pastor that the young girl in the complex would wear a bikini and flaunt herself, fully aware of Paul's presence. And I'm just gonna go ahead and call BS on this one right here. In all fairness, I don't know this for a fact, but I would bet good money that this was a total lie that Paul was telling himself and most likely anyone who asked. I don't think for a second that this 15-year-old girl was flaunting herself for some 45-year-old creep who was probably, once again, tracking his neighbors from inside his wife's apartment. I think he was watching Laura very closely, and just like when he was watching Linda Fida through his people in 1972, his future victim didn't even realize he was there. Did you know who Paul Rolls was? Had you seen him before? I don't remember ever encountering him. You know, he wasn't one of those people that were outside where I would have seen him a lot. He probably was very sneaky in his comings and goings. So no, I didn't know him. Paul's comings and goings included breaking into Laura's apartment to steal her underwear. And like Laura said, she noticed stuff would sometimes go missing, but they definitely weren't looking at their neighbors. After all, Laura's mom and Paul's wife were in a Bible study together. So what was to suspect? After the Christmas visit was over, Paul was back to living in his Jacksonville apartment. He was getting it packed up and ready for his move to be with Kathy and Andrew. But detectives say sometimes he would get in his truck and drive four to five hours to Clearwater so that he could crawl through a window in Laura's apartment and steal more underwear. 
On January 31, 1994, a Monday, Paul got in his red Ford Bronco at 2.30 in the morning and he drove four and a half hours from Jacksonville to the Indian Rocks apartment complex. He said he was, quote, going to see about a girl that lived up in the apartment up above to abduct her. Paul got to Clearwater around 7 o'clock that morning and then he drove around for another hour and a half waiting for his wife to leave her apartment to go to work. Now, this is not spelled out anywhere, but I think he was aiming for something similar to his first crime, where he was going to break in and wait for his victim to walk back through the front door, because he came prepared. Once he was sure his wife had left the complex, Paul crawled through Laura's window, wearing his gloves and carrying pre-cut duct tape and ski masks. And he had planned for this enough that he had split the duct tape in half because he thought the roll was too wide. And then he rolled the thinner strip into another smaller roll so that it was easier to carry. So he knew what he was going to do, but I don't think he knew when he was going to do it, since Laura should have been at school by the time he took off the window screen to break into the apartment. And the most important part of that sentence was should have been. My mom had went to work and probably right before she left, I said to her I wasn't feeling well and could I stay home? And so she said I could. So that particular morning I did stay home and I was asleep when he broke in. I just remember like I had an eerie feeling. I was laying in bed, I was probably half asleep. I, I guess I must have heard a noise when he came in, but it, it kind of woke me up so I just happened to like turn over and look towards the doorway and I saw a tall man standing there so at first I thought maybe it was my father you know as I was opening my eyes but probably within a split second I realized it wasn't him and that this person this object was coming at me that's when he just ran up to me and told me not to move or say anything and he had a knife to my throat I was just in disbelief of everything. Like I was in shock. I was just trying to follow his commands so that nothing would happen. You know, you can't even describe the feeling. It's just very intense. You're in shock. I just did what he asked me to do, which was basically get dressed because all I had on at the time was like a t-shirt that I was sleeping in and my undergarments. And so he had me put on some jeans and shoes, but he had me take off my jewelry and leave it there. Then he had me walk out of the bedroom to the dining area and he, he said to me, you know, write a letter to your mother and tell her that you left with some friends. So I wrote a letter, left it on the table. Paul duct taped Laura's wrist together, zipped a jacket around her, put duct tape and sunglasses over her eyes, and then took her downstairs to Catherine's apartment. That's when I realized that it was someone that lived there because there was only about maybe... 15 to 20 apartments so it was almost directly underneath ours so i did you know going up and down the stairs know that Catherine lived there they weren't at Catherine's very long before paul took laura outside and they walked about two blocks away to where he had parked his bronco and again paul had put the jacket and sunglasses and then also a hat on her but her arms were bound together and her eyes had duct tape over them and they were walking a pretty good distance in broad daylight and no one stopped them. Paul got Laura into his truck and started driving to Jacksonville via Gainesville. The trip would take hours and there would be several stops along the way but this 15-year-old was prepared. 
Laura told me she watched a lot of true crime shows back then, like Cops and America's Most Wanted, and she also told me her grandfather had been a detective, so she knew to start paying attention to every tiny detail about her kidnapper and anything she could pick up on their route. She told me she has a photographic memory, and her survival instincts kicked in immediately. Even though he put the tape over my eyes, part of one of the pieces of tape was starting to peel back a little. So there was little, a little that I could see out of the corner of my eye, you know, as far as like a little sunlight or something. There wasn't a lot of conversation. I mean, it was mostly just me saying things like I wanted to go back to see my mom and him just like assure, you know, reassuring me, yes, she'll be able to see her. The music was playing. He asked me a few questions here or there to see if I was hungry, if I needed to use the bathroom. Along with taking in all the details and committing them to memory, Laura started praying. She told me her mom sat her down for a talk just a couple weeks earlier because she'd wanted to tell Laura about something from that Bible study she went to with Catherine Rolls. And Laura believes that's what saved her life. She said to me, if you're ever afraid or in fear, just call on the name of Jesus. And she said, he'll be with you. The devil has to flee. And so that came to me. And that's, you know, when all this was happening, that's the only thing I could think of and hold on to. The whole trip there, I just kept saying in the name of Jesus over and over in my head. When all of that was going on, did you think he would kill you? I, I was trying not to think of what could happen. I just was thinking back to the conversation my mother had with me. I just took it to heart and remembered it. And it's the first thing that came to my mind when I was going through this. And, you know, I just got so much strength and courage and hope from believing that. And I, I, I didn't think about if that were to happen. I just kept hoping that I would somehow make it out. Paul must have been really confident he was in control because he stopped multiple times on this trip to adjust the tape, to get drinks, to let Laura stretch her legs. The gas station, I remember vividly because when he went to pay gas, I wanted to escape at that point. But having everything taped up, I was kind of scared to attempt to leave because if he had got back before I was able to, you know, he'd be angry. I think I tried to unlock the door and it was locked. So I had some trouble. I don't know how he could have rigged it up to where I couldn't open it. I don't know. But I, I do remember trying to get out and he was back so quick. I mean, it, it didn't leave me hardly any time anyway. Paul told Laura that if she just did what he said, she'd be okay. If she behaved, followed his orders and drove to Jacksonville with him, he'd somehow make sure she could go back. And he would talk to me at times and, you know, I would give him short answers and I kept saying, I want to see my mom. I want to go home. Um, and I believe his response was, you'll be able to go home. You'll be able to see your mom soon. Just do what I ask of you. So she did. And that was her strategy. Go along with the plan. So I just kind of held on to that hope and continued to pray. I, I believe that's kind of what... I thought would work is just trying to not upset him. If I tried to fight back early on, you know, it, it, it could end in me being killed or he would be more aggressive with me. So I felt like by just trying to be calm and quiet that I'd be better off in the end. 
Part of Paul's plan still baffles me, but once again plays into just how full of himself he was. Because you would think somebody kidnapping a 15-year-old girl who's covered in duct tape in the middle of the day might look suspicious. And that whoever was doing something like that would, at a minimum, go to great lengths to hide what they were doing. But when Paul and Laura got to Gainesville, he took them through the Steak and Shake drive through it was really strange because, you know, this whole time I'm just hoping that somebody sees something abnormal, unusual, and that they would have called the police, especially when we were at Steak and Shake. But he had the seat reclined to where even if they saw that something was strange, they probably couldn't see very much, maybe a person lying back. So he asked if I wanted something to eat. I said no. And then he started saying, well, what's wrong? Don't you want to eat something? And I, I just happened to say, I don't eat a lot of meat. I don't like meat. So he's like, oh, I have some microwavable type noodles at home you can have. Was he, he's not normal. Did he act like a, a normal person? What was he like to you that day? It was very odd. I really don't even know how to explain his demeanor. I would think that he was overly calm to be someone who's planning on killing someone or even kidnapping someone because, you know, when he would just leave to go to pay for the gas and go through the drive through I mean, most people that are committing a crime like that are not going to stop for food and take chances like that. So it's really hard to explain what was going through his head. He just seemed very methodical, like he had a plan. This was all developed in his head prior to it happening. You know, he had thought this out. So Lore kept going on with Paul's plan and praying in his passenger seat. Next thing you know, he's like, well, stop so you can stretch your legs. And I remember getting out very afraid because I didn't know why he had pulled over like he did. It was just kind of like out of the blue. Okay, if you don't remember any of the other things I've told you to remember or pay attention to in this entire podcast, remember this. Paul and Laura had been driving for a while after their stop at Steak and Shake, right? Laura still had her eyes duct taped shut, but she's paying super close attention to what she can hear and feel. And she says all of a sudden, Paul pulled off of the road and drove into the woods. What I remember is I felt like we were just on a long highway and then all of a sudden there was this rough him veering off and going through some wooded area. It's almost like if you're you're driving on an interstate or highway and, you know, this was 20 something years ago. So the roads look different. But I, what I was picturing was that he was on a highway and sometimes maybe 20 feet away from the highway, there's some trees. So it felt like he pulled off of the highway and within a very short time, he was in a wooded area. Because I could hear in kind of out the corner of the tape, see a lot of trees and it felt like they were hitting the truck. And then when I stood out of the truck, it, there were so many trees around. Like, I don't even remember seeing a road. There may have been just the, the road that his truck was sitting on, but it was pretty much just woods all around. Again, these woods are so important. Paul said, quote, it was kind of like an area where people could go back in and dump things that they wanted to dump. That's also really important for you to remember. Oh, and one more thing. When it was time to get back in the Bronco to leave, Paul said they were getting closer. They were only about an hour or so away from where they were going. 
I was very afraid, but he had me stand outside of the truck for about a minute or two. And then I got back in and then he just continued the rest of the way. I, I remember seeing a sign where I could see out of the tape and seeing the word Jacksonville. And then we ended up at his apartment. Once they got to Paul's Jacksonville apartment complex, Paul got Laura out of the truck and started walking her to his apartment. And again, her eyes are duct taped shut and her wrists are duct taped together. And yeah, Paul had zipped his coat up over her, but the arms of it were obviously empty and she was clearly a minor. So Laura is still praying and hoping that on one of these stops, someone's going to see them and save her. And then, on this walk from the car to Paul's apartment, someone at the complex walked right by them and talked to Paul. It was very, very strange because as we're walking to his apartment, he passed by somebody and said hello. So I thought that the way he had me looking was crazy, like that someone had to, you know, think something was up, but apparently not. So then that's when we went into the apartment and he said to me, he had to make his alibi. Like he actually told me that and he's like, I'm making a call. So it sounded like he was calling a pharmacy or something. And then also he called his wife and I don't remember everything in their conversation, but it was more or less, he drove back to Jacksonville and then it seemed like she was asking a couple questions and that was it. When did you decide I'm going to try to run? I think the whole time from when he first kidnapped me, it was crossing my mind. I was always thinking when would be the right time because it was going to happen. I was going to attempt it at some point, but I, I was just waiting for the right time because I just knew that if, if if something went wrong, it could just go a whole different direction. Remember when they were in the car and Paul told Laura he'd make her a microwave pasta dish when they got to his apartment? Well, they hadn't been at Paul's place very long, maybe an hour or so, when Paul started heating it up. So when the timer went off, he got up and went to the kitchen to see if the food had finished cooking. I'm sitting in the living room and he had some show on and he was in the kitchen microwaving something. And so... At this point, because I had used the bathroom, I didn't have everything on that I had on. I didn't have the tape, none of that, all that was off. I still had some clothes on. And so he said, do you want something to drink? So I said, yes. And so he's like, go get the glass of water from the room. I just knew like that was my opportunity. And at that moment, it was just like an instinct. It was almost just like someone saying, go, you know, almost like God saying, go now. I think he knew he made a mistake when he said, go to the room and get the drink. Because, you know, my senses were so heightened, I could just hear his, his movement. So I, I remember when I was in the hall, like right where the door was, I think that's when he said, well, let me make sure that's what she's doing. And I ran to the front door and there was a tire in front of it. So I used one hand. I mean, I got lucky because I didn't know which locks he had locks, you know. I, I just put one hand on the double lock and turned it, and then I put one hand where the tire was and shoved it out of my way and then grabbed the doorknob and ran out. And he was probably just coming out of the kitchen as I was unlocking it, and I was just that fast that those few feet made a huge difference, and he just couldn't stop me in enough time. Was he going to try, do you think? Definitely. I think if I had been standing like at the door and hadn't already had it unlocked, he would have just grabbed me. 
but I was in the process of unlocking it. And by the time he could get there, I'm out the door. I thought he would definitely chase me out of there, but I guess I had that much of a lead that he just knew it was impossible. And so you just started running. I just started running just as fast as I could. Once I was able to run out of his apartment, I looked back to see if he was right behind me, right when I got outside of where the building is. And he was just standing at the doorway. And that's when I just ran as fast as I could. It was still daylight and there was a woman checking her mail, maybe a couple hundred feet from there. And I just ran up to her and I said, help me, please help me. This man tried to rape me, he's kidnapped me. And she was shocked and she could see how I was in a panic mode and I was young. So she just grabbed me and took me into her home. She gave me some clothes to wear and I waited for the police to come. Laura had escaped from Paul's apartment wearing only a t-shirt. And so Paul took all of the rest of her clothes, put them in a bag, drove to a nearby Blockbuster, threw the bag in their dumpster, and then he drove back home to his apartment. The police rushed to the complex and formed a perimeter around Paul's apartment, but when they knocked on the door, he just let them in. The apartment looked just as Laura had described it to police. Boxes everywhere, a truck tire inside next to the front door, and Paul who she had to identify as her kidnapper. Catherine Rolls would later sign consent for the police to search Paul's apartment, and they took two bags of cords, rolls and rolls of duct tape, a bag of gloves, a couple of knives, and rope into evidence. But while law enforcement was looking for other evidence, they let Catherine take some of Paul's personal belongings, and that included a Bowie knife collection. Okay, if you're like me and have no idea what a Bowie knife is, I want you to do a quick Google image search here. It's B-O-W-I-E, by the way. So we know Paul had used the feet as paring knives to stab his first victim, Linda, right? And he'd used a pocket knife with a six-inch blade to abduct Laura. So I was picturing something along those lines. Definitely not a collection of hunting weapons that look like many swords. And I don't know how many he had, but the police called it a collection, and they let their suspect's wife take them home. And for those of you screaming at your stereo, I get it. I cannot explain this one, and none of the officers from this case are still at the Jacksonville Sheriff's Office, so I wasn't able to ask them what happened here. But from where I'm sitting, it looks like they had just arrested a man who kidnapped a 15-year-old at knife point, threatened to kill her with that knife, and that same man had been in prison for murdering his neighbor before attacking her with numerous knives. And in spite of that, they just let his family take a whole set of hunting knives out of his apartment with no plans to get them to a lab. Maybe law enforcement would have had to have even more of a reason to keep them. Maybe the knives were decorative or just a collector's item, and Paul had never done a single nefarious thing with any of them. I don't know. But my stomach turns every time I think about whose DNA could have been on those knives, and the fact that we'll never know. Looking back now, do you think that he would have killed you had you not escaped? Yeah, I, I do. As much as I tried to keep the situation calm and cooperate, at some point, you know, I knew 
I was going to make an attempt to escape and thank God that I was able to, but if it hadn't went successfully, I do feel like that ultimately would have been the outcome. The police told me with certain things he had said or done where he had me take my necklace off back in Clearwater. They said that was so that you wouldn't be as easily identified. When he mentioned alibi, having to cover his tracks. So yeah, I definitely feel like that could have been what happened. Paul was arrested and confessed that night to absolutely everything involving Laura. His attorney did try to go for an insanity plea, but it didn't work, and the parole on Paul's life sentence was revoked. And so Paul Rolls was going to go behind bars for the rest of his life for real this time. It took one brave 15-year-old girl to stop Paul Rolls from preying on women. And if you ask me, she is the hero of this story. The justice system couldn't protect Paul's victims, law enforcement couldn't protect Paul's victims, and the rest of us could not protect Paul's victims. But Laura, when Laura escaped and then led the police to Paul, she took care of every single woman who would have ever walked in front of Paul Rolls after her. I don't take the credit for it. Like I said, it's my relationship with God. And I feel like, you know, I was meant to to be here and have the family I have and do what I've been able to do. And it wasn't my time. And I, I kind of, in a way, feel bad for saying that because of the victims that lost their life and didn't have more time. So we don't always know God's plan in its entirety. Um, but definitely, I feel like I'm here by the grace of God. I don't think it's anything that I did. Linda should have been able to do her laundry. Tiffany should have been able to take a walk. Beth should have been able to read. And Laura should have been able to sleep. But even though we can't go back in time and save them from Paul Rolls, we can still fight for these women, especially Tiffany Sessions, because her case is technically still open and we have not been able to find her. Law enforcement is still doing its part and now Laura is joining them. I went up there once before or twice and recently because there was another area that they wanted to search for Tiffany's remains. Remember the woods and when Paul pulled off the side of what felt like a highway to drive into a heavily wooded area? The current detective on this case has been wondering whether Paul had a specific heavily wooded area he liked to take his victims somewhere he felt safe, somewhere he could dump things. And could the spot Paul had taken Laura be where he took his other victims? You know, it seems like it could definitely be a possibility of that's where he stopped with me. The detective thinks that if we could find those woods, we might still be able to find Tiffany Sessions. Oh yeah, I've never taken this way to get to Jacksonville. It's a little spooky. You gotta know the back roads without a doubt. And look about places to leave bodies. Oh my god, it's all wooded. In the next episodes of Shallow Graves. So, Haley, I took these out of evidence yesterday. When was the last time someone looked at these? Now, our agency has never. We're going to start putting the pieces together. Do you believe it? Do you think it was Tiffany? I don't know. But if we ever search all this, it goes back for like 10,000 acres. Yeah, I don't know how we even do it. And you're finally going to hear from the woman who might have been one of the last people to see Tiffany Sessions alive and might have the final bits of information we need to find her. As I'm approaching, a girl shoots out. 
as fast as she can possibly run, directly into the front and center of the road. She was intentionally trying to get me to like stop or I would have hit her. And in her face was nothing but pure fear. Subscribe to Shallow Graves so you get the next episode automatically, and then let me know what you think. You can call me, I have a voicemail box set up where you can leave any and all thoughts or questions you have about the podcast, and I might play your message and talk about it later this season. The number's 352-559-5007, and you can also reach me through my Instagram or Facebook page, look for Haley Holloway, or shoot me an email at shallowgravespodcast at gmail.com. Music for this podcast is by Mark at Lineout Studio, and audio restoration is by Aston Lopez.